0: Stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. This is God's Word. But Peter, standing with the eleven... "'lifted up his voice, and addressed them. "'Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, "'let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. "'For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, "'since it is only the third hour of the day, "'but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel.' blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, and the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to consider these, these matters of the creed and from our portion of Scripture. Let us pray for God's help, Almighty God. Nothing in Your Word is trivial. Not a not a dot of it is superfluous, and You have given it to us for our instruction, and and You have preserved Your Church in the proper teaching of Your Word through. These documents, our creeds, our confessions, as we need help, uh, providential guidance and support to keep ourselves in the truth. And sometimes there are complicated truths in your word and as summarized uh, in the things that have been handed down to us by past ages of believers. And as we consider this one tonight, we ask for your help. And not only that we would have mental clarity, that we, not just that we would come away with some sort of better intellectual understanding, but that we would be encouraged. That Christ Jesus went through death and knows everything that stands before us as mortals, but has conquered it. As our souls will depart from our bodies, so did his. And yet our fear about that matter can be rolled back because he rose from the grave and defeated all of these things. And so help us to have clarity and encouragement. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, if I were to ask you what the word "read" means, I, I think I would likely get—I th- I think I would likely get a majority response of something like processing written words. I think that that's what most people would say. But the thing is, the word in my notes is "are." E E D. Breathing underwater. Uh, Okay. Now, you might rethink your answer. So, to bring to mind something like a a plant. Uh, But it could also be something that you use to breathe underwater. Uh, Or the mouthpiece of certain woodwind instruments. But even if we were to to think about R-E-A-D, read... Well, even that can bounce differently in certain contexts. Like we can read the room. Which isn't exactly the same as processing written words. And so what we see is that words are sometimes hard to grab hold of. Because they have multiple meanings, inflections, spellings, versions, etc. And that difficulty increases... Uh, when we deal with how the use of word changes over time and then gets even more difficult when we add layers of translation into the mix. And such are the challenges when we come to the line of the Apostles' Creed that Christ descended into hell. Now, lots of historical factors go into a, a proper understanding and interpretation of this affirmation in our most fundamental creed. And the fact that it is our most fundamental creed should make us very hesitant to criticize it before we start, uh, before we, at least before we do a deep dive into thinking about what could be going on here. And, and that means that before we can ask the question, which is a right and proper and necessary question of, does the Bible teach this? Well, we kind of have to ask the first question of, what is this? What teaching are we even talking about? And that's our challenge tonight, to, to unpack what it means to confess that Christ descended into hell and then to discover how the Bible teaches it. And as we come to this phrase that Christ descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed, uh, I've been been both anxious and really looking forward uh, to this sermon since we started this. It was kind of the one that was hanging out there of, uh, I think we'll have to do some extra work on this, and and I think one of the things is we need to start by clearing away some misunderstanding. Probably have to overcome some some skepticism, and definitely have to parse out uh, some compli- maybe complicated ideas, at least not obvious ideas. Uh, now, because some evangelical theologians take their they kind of read the line in English and and take their first impression as the unquestionable right understanding of this line, which isn't the way we should do things. There has been a move proposing to remove it from the creed. And that, I just mentioned that to show how real the challenge before us is. Nevertheless, though, I I think that with I really believe that with some historical context, proper understanding, grappling with the, how the scripture talks about these things, this line is a wonderful truth, worth affirming wholeheartedly, that tells us something about what Christ has achieved for us, that encourages us as we look forward to life and the afterlife. And so, our main point. Our main point is that Christ's descent Christ's descent affirms his true humanity which enables him to save us Christ's descent affirms his true humanity which enables him to save us and our three points tonight are definitions, denials and destination Uh, now I I I do I don't do this often so I do want to recommend a a book just before we dive into this probably if you want more probably the best short kind of way to grab hold of this is is Danny Hyde's book called uh In Defense of the Descent so In Defense of the Descent so that's just a recommendation in case this isn't quite clear enough or extensive enough uh so let's start with definitions definitions um i i, I usually, my first impulse is usually i want to go straight to to bible exposition or or theological explanation from a, a text and and although that's my typical first impulse i i think here the only way that we can get our heads around this the right way is with some historical context for this discussion so this line in the Creed has a more unique background than any of the others. Uh, so, so we get the Apostles' Creed from, from the earliest Christian writers uh, as, as they summarize what they called the rule of faith, right? The rule of faith was a short description of the contents of Scripture that guided Christians unto proper conclusions as they read the Bible. And the content of the rule of faith across numerous very ancient uh, writers was basically the same as the Apostles' Creed. So, so the lines were nearly identical, and they called this the rule of faith, and it's come to us as the Apostles' Creed. Now, here's the thing. In, in the rule of faiths, earliest versions, this line about Christ's descent into hell uh, did not appear as we have it in the place that it is. Now, this was particularly true in the West uh, as examples from uh, like third century theologian Tertullian show. He talks about the rule of faith and it gives you everything except this line. Now, churches further east, one of the things that we see happening is that this line about Christ's descent appeared instead of the phrase that he was buried, which I think is really interesting. (laughs) Uh, So in in the earliest formulations, what what that's telling us is in, in the earliest formulations, the phrases that... Christ was buried, and that he descended into hell, seemed to hold equivalent places in alternatively developing uh, formulations of the rule of faith. And Christians felt that, that means that Christians felt that whatever they needed from each phrase essentially came built into both. Over time, both of them made their way into the creed as subsequent lines that were building upon each other. Now, as we see that close connection of this descent and Christ's burial, that history tells us that Christ's descent, as Christians, earliest Christians affirmed it, is not something fanciful, as it might appear as we read these words on on first impression, but rather than something fanciful, was directly related to his incarnate experience of burial. Yet, at the same time, the inclusion of both lines tells us that these statements are nevertheless not superfluous. There is something distinct that each one is, is adding, and that distinction should still be set, nevertheless, should still be set within the context of seeing that Christ's descent was connected to, directly to his being buried. And so there is this intimate link between those two affirmations. Now, that's kind of the, the first um, step in reckoning with this, this line historically. is just thinking about how we came to receive it in the creed. And, and now we're, we're going to add another curveball into the mix when, when we reckon with the background of the word hell itself. Because, because there is some translation complexity here. I don't really like to do the original language thing in the pulpit, but, but this is what we need to do this time. So uh, in Greek, Gehenna refers to the place of everlasting torment. Uh, Gehenna was a valley outside Jerusalem. It was a trash heap that was always on fire, which means that there's a, a very powerful and scary metaphor built into that. For what hell is supposed to be like we'll come to that another day uh, to stay on familiar territory as, as we uh, think about the word usage here so Mark nine forty three says and if your hand causes you to sin cut it off for it's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell Gehenna in Greek, to the unquenchable fire. And so here, Gehenna is, is hell as the place of torment in contrast to everlasting life. So that's, that's one word uh, in Greek that, that bounces into English as hell. But there's another word. There's another Greek word that we end up translating as hell. And that word is Hades. Hades. And, so, and sometimes we just put that in the text. So in Acts 2, you saw Hades pop up. But that's not always the case. So Matthew sixteen eighteen says, uh, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, Hades in Greek, shall not prevail against it. Now, now this instance of Hades uh, has some clear opposition to the church, and we can uh, seem to infer, basically, that this carries a similar sense of, of condemnation, the place of condemnation, and, and that is why the ESV there translated it as hell, in this case. But, <laughs> Hades can have a wider meaning. Uh, Luke 16, uh, in Luke 16, 19 to 31, and I'm not going to read the whole, whole thing there. Uh, in this parable, Jesus told about the, the rich man and Lazarus uh, as a warning about the relationship of, of this life and the next. And so he's, he's telling about, uh, about how the, the rich man goes to, to Hades And how Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And in verse 23, referring to the rich man, Jesus said, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, what we see there is, this seems to be the same place because they can see each other sort of throws a a wrench <laughs> in our sort of neat and tidy uh, compartmentalizations of of how we think of things now, but what we see though is Hades is a setting for everyone involved. Granted this is a parable, yet we're talking about how the word operates, uh, and the rich man is is being on his part is being tormented in Hades, and he can see Lazarus. And Abraham enjoying Hades. And so Hades has a wider flexibility. That in contrast with Gehenna. Which is only the place of torment. Hades can include the rest of people. In the afterlife. It is in a sense the, the general, general spiritual locale of everybody who dies. And that word the word that governed our phrase in the Apostles' Creed is Hades. So it's probably debatable whether earlier English included the same flexibility in our word hell as as the word Hades encompasses. But I but I think that it's likely that that we We used to have a wider meaning built into this, and I didn't, frankly, just didn't have the time to dive into a millennia of English language history. Um, But, and I think the reason why that doesn't matter that much is because theology hasn't been working with English until very recently. I mean, we are working with English all the time, but the way that people have been doing theology for the church Well, the widespread use of English is relatively recent in the scope of of church history. Uh, So, let's bring all these details together. Despite the initial impression we might get from a a first read of the Apostles' Creed, uh, the point of our line in in question is not that Christ went to the place of everlasting torment. That's not what it means. And the suggestion that Christ went to the place of torment, especially the suggestion that he went there to continue his own suffering there apart from his body, wasn't at all part of the early church's understanding of this phrase. Uh, Not really part of the medieval or Reformation church's understanding and is basically a pretty modern suggestion based on the kind of first impression reading, Uh, and it's actually most associated with uh, Pentecostalism and the prosperity gospel and how they're trying to develop that in in a particular way. So definitions, (laughs) definitions show us the complexity of this topic. Uh, We need to define the creed's word for Christ's descent to hell as the as the place where the believing dead—it's the place where the believing dead were located. That's where Christ went. The place where the believing dead were. Okay, that brings us to our second point: uh, denials, denials. So w- w- this has been kind of a, a, a slow run-up to the issues, um, trying trying just to get a handle of what's going on in the you know, behind this phrase. And what I want to do now is actually, I I tend not to put in front of you the things that I don't want you to believe. Uh, Maybe for obvious reasons. So I don't do a lot of refuting objections. But uh, for this, so here's another exception tonight. I I kind of want to put out before us what we should not believe uh, concerning Christ's descent. And I think that that's helpful just because of, of the kind of easy connotations we could get uh, from, from the way this line is worded. Now, one thing that we should note that, that I think is, is really important is that while the Creed states, so the Creed does state where Christ went, it makes no claim as to what he did there. Now, especially when we start to consider some of the more fanciful suggestions, and they say, well, this is just the ancient belief, we can come back and say, well, we have some good information about where they said he went, but given that they have outlined the work that he did do in more detail than anything else in the Creed, the fact that they omitted description of what he did suggest something, at least of what they thought was important, uh, and perhaps that they they were kind of hands-off because it may have been just as confusing and complicated or debated for them. Uh, So what that tells us, though, is that we should not unduly import any work into this line when the creed was formulated to affirm a specific claim, a specific claim, and we should not add uh, or, or uh, anything that, that isn't there without reason to add, it. and we shouldn't assume that they thought that that was a necessary part of their teaching. And so, given that is the case here, we should argue for our best interpretation of, of the words and not assume that it has to mean one thing or the other. Now, as I've already said, we should—and this one shouldn't, really, shouldn't be controversial. Uh, we should not believe that Christ's descent was to the place of torment. We should not believe that he he went there to continue his experience of being consciously punished for our sin nor for the purpose of, uh, yeah, really pointedly, nor for the purpose of offering a second chance at salvation for people who had previously been sent to hell. That is not what we should think. Uh, the most speculative interpretations aren't open to us, and have not, these have not been suggested as the meaning for most of church history. I mean that. So that, that should also give us some confidence in the people who, you know, handed this down to us, that they didn't mean something wild and fanciful either. So second, second, we should not believe that Christ descended to anywhere other than the than the place of spiritual paradise where dead believers are today. Christ didn't go somewhere other than the spiritual paradise where dead believers are now. One interpretation of Christ's descent suggests that Old Testament believers were sent to a kind of holding tank, uh, a separate part of, of hell where believers were kept during the Old Testament period, free from some punishment, but still deprived of the blessing of knowing God's direct presence according to the, to the glorified state of our souls when we die, right? So despite having believed in the Messiah who would come, despite faith in that, and despite how Uh, God imputes righteousness to Abraham by faith and to all those who follow in his stead. This claim says, yeah, but they still didn't go to know the Lord in in his direct sight when they died. Now, to pause for a second, I mean, this position is a growing issue Uh, in kind of related circles, as some want to impose a a greater distance between the Old and New Testaments by differentiating how salvation works before and after Christ came. The idea is that Old Testament believers could not have had the privilege of truly going to, to heaven in their souls until after Christ came and paid for their sin in history. Now, that neglects everything we studied last week in Romans three twenty-one to 26, about how God passed over, how he forgave former sins, namely those sins committed by Old Testament believers. God passed over them. And because they had been given to Christ to pay for in eternity, those people went to heaven. And this view, so this view, this suggestion is incompatible with what we, we studied in, in Jude, that Jesus saved people during the Old Testament period. It's incompatible with what we read of the doctrine of justification throughout the book of Romans and the tenor of Scripture. And then we come to some additional support for understanding, well, that paradise then is the same as paradise where we will go. So we see that paradise was the place where believers went both before and after Christ's resurrection. So let me just run through a few verses to demonstrate this, right? Uh, in Luke 22, 43, Christ said, this is the classic one, but we're going to build on it. Uh, Christ said to the thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, and if we sort of take a, a backward telescoping view, it's like how how did Enoch, how did Elijah get translated bodily into paradise? If they if they if they were going to some holding tank, they already experience full glorification, which is astounding. And so then we build even further, right? Second Corinthians twelve three. Paul's writing, uh, really, of himself, as most interpreters think. In his vision, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So positing that his own spiritual experience after Christ's resurrection was in paradise. I mean, best we can gather, from normal use of words, the same place that Christ was with the believing thief before. His resurrection. And in Revelation 2.7, Christ encourages us unto perseverance, saying, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's the place where we're all going. That's the place we're all headed. The new creation itself as the place of God's blessed presence. So believers have always gone to be directly with the Lord when they die. Christ's descent to the place of the dead was to be with those believing saints who had already died. As is a fair translation of of the words behind our creed, we might have been better off had we translated uh, this line as he descended to the dead which is a fair translation, or to the place of the dead. But since our translation is what it is, we should understand this line of the creed this way, that I've tried to outline, that Christ went to the place where the believing dead were in paradise with God. Our denials are to exclude Positions that revise our understanding of Christ's work on the cross, or of how salvation has been the same across redemptive history, and that brings us to our final point: destination. Destination. Uh, and now we we come to where we start to do some some positive, constructive explanation. Uh, now, here's one of the things: is this takes us back to a really robust understanding of the person of Christ. We, a few weeks ago, we thought about the two natures of Christ and how that's a necessary truth on which our salvation hangs. And this line actually confirms and supports and upholds that truth. How? Given that the eternal son assumed a true human nature (coughs) which included a true human soul he didn't just assume a human body he assumed a human body and human soul he assumed a whole human nature else he couldn't have restored our human souls right and human bodies And and that's a that's an ancient heresy that was long ago refuted at some of our councils. So, uh, given that the eternal son assumed a full human nature, including a true human soul, at his incarnation, the point, the theological payoff of this line in the creed is to affirm that Christ's human soul went somewhere when he died. So it didn't evaporate. It didn't disappear Christ stayed bound to his assumed human nature, his human soul. When Christ died on the cross, he remained under the power of death for three days. And by remaining under that power, he proved that his death was real and not some temporary fainting. Three days, I mean, in, in in the first century, three days was kind of the mark of... Uh, yes, they're really dead. And he identified with his people in our experience of the curse, in in the, the experience of the curse that we will have between death and resurrection. We're not supposed to be separated from our bodies. And that happens to us only because of sin. But Westminster Larger Catechism helps us see this point asking wherein consisted Christ's humiliation or his his enduring of the curse for us after his death? Answering, with an interpretation of, of the descent clause from the Apostles' Creed, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead, and under the power of death till the third day, which has otherwise been expressed in these words, he descended into hell. So when when Christ assumed a human nature at his incarnation, it included that human soul. And therefore... The son remained incarnate, being joined to human nature, even while his body was dead. Because the person of the son still had a true human soul that experienced death like we do after our death as we wait for our resurrection even though the the effects of sin's curse are relieved from us as our souls uh, at our death go to be in God's direct blessed presence, that nonetheless, that period between death and resurrection still means that some effects of sin's curse hang upon us because that separation of body and soul on account of Bodily death is part of the curse. Jesus rolls back the entirety of the curse at his last, at his final coming. And what we see here, though, what we see here is that we, we so often rightly, 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 we focus on the cross and what Christ did there and the comfort we find in that and on the resurrection And the comfort and the hope we find there. And here we find comfort in knowing that Christ truly did undergo everything for us. Christ endured even this aspect of humiliation. That although his human soul went to paradise to be reunited with his father. And to be among his people as they waited for resurrection. He was disconnected from his body for those three days. And so finally, to get to Acts 2, Peter cited Psalm 16, 8 to 11. So verses 22 to 36, Peter's dealing with this issue. He cites Psalm 16 to prove how Christ's resurrection overturns the curse of death. David's psalm, as Peter tells us, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, Jesus, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corrupt- corruption. The world of the afterlife, Hades, with paradise and Gehenna included, right could That afterlife state, that locale, could not keep the righteous Son of God. Because His work overrode the curse upon us all. He broke the chains of sin and death by dying for our sin and overcoming death itself in His resurrection. Although His soul... Joined believers in paradise during his three days in the grave. He paved the way out of the grave for all who trust in him for salvation. He ascended, leading and continuing to lead the host of captives free. As his risen and enthroned exaltation guarantees that we will follow our Savior into the new creation. All of us face death. Nobody makes it out alive. And the question is, where do we find comfort and safety in the face of that reality? Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. And just as it... it, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him unless we are here When Christ returns, we will all follow the path he took. Namely, our bodies will lie in our graves for a time as our souls go to paradise to be with the Lord. Wonderfully, the risen Christ is in that place, he is there. And as we perceive him, as as our souls are there in paradise, we will perceive him in his resurrection glory. And we will know and be assured that every facet of sin's curse will be also reversed for us. And we will get to follow his path back out of our graves as well. Inasmuch as God never abandoned Christ to Hades, we have the pledge that he will not leave us there either. Our destination is to join Christ in glory, knowing that he endured every aspect of death to make sure that we are freed from all of it at the last day. Let's pray. Father God, what a wonderful Savior we have, who endured everything that was necessary to purchase, to secure, to guarantee the salvation of his people. Sometimes we have to think harder about the truth of your word and about how your people have explained it over the millennia. But we are thankful for even this complicated line of our most fundamental affirmation of what the Lord Jesus did. That he descended to the dead. And that as we go to the place of the dead, when our bodies deteriorate enough that we leave this physical plane, we get to go join him. And inasmuch as he burst forth from the tomb... He will drag us from our graves at his return as well. This line is such a wonderful claim to the triumph and victory of the Lord Jesus in all that he has defeated. So help us, Lord, to cherish it up amongst the many others that we read, recite, and affirm every week that we might with vigor declare Everything the Lord Jesus did for us. And so as we go into the week before us, none of us know what lies ahead. But whatever the case, help us not to fear what comes at the end of our lives. It could be that this week for any of us, and we don't mean to, do, to bring that up, that we might despair or worry, but that we might know that even if it is our time, The Lord Jesus has gone there before us and has defeated it and defeated it on our behalf so that it will not hold us any more than it held him. Help us to rejoice in that truth all our days in this life and the next. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. People of God, stand to receive your benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Great to be with you today.